And welcome to Powell Presbyterian Church. Uh, as far as things going on uh, around the church this week, everything is as normal. Uh, the Bible study tomorrow morning at 10 on, on Monday. Also Wednesday we'll have our prayer meeting and Bible study at uh, 11, or I, I checked at 10.30, and then uh, youth on Wednesday night. As far as our uh, Christmas missions projects, uh, if uh, if you have any questions about that, uh, you can uh, call me or talk with Becky. Um, and that money is due, by the way, next week, if you can get that uh, to Becky by then. And uh, so then we can get that all taken care of. And then what I'll have you do is turn to Genesis chapter 49. And uh, we'll read verses 1 through 12. And and uh, as a reminder, and maybe I'm telling some for the first time, we've been going through Genesis, and we started a few years ago now, and we've taken it in chunks, and we have just two chapters to go. And so I would like to go back and we'll finish up Genesis in the next few weeks here. We've gone through creation and Noah and the ark, and then there was Abraham and Isaac, and, and we've been at, we were on Jacob uh, before we left, and a big part of Jacob is the Joseph story who, when he gets sold into Egypt. But Jacob, who is also called Israel, had, uh, well, two wives, but there were kind of four wives. There was Leah and Rachel, and uh, they were sisters, and he got tricked into marrying Leah, but really wanted to marry Rachel, so he ends up married to both of them. And then, uh, as servant wives or concubines, uh, he also has Bilhah and Zilpha. Uh, they were uh, the servants of his two wives. And, and among these uh, four women, or four wives, if you will, there's 12 sons now. And one of them, as I mentioned, Joseph, was the son that he really liked because that was from the wife he really liked, who was Rachel. But all the other brothers uh, were a little resentful because of how much Jacob liked Joseph. So he got sold into Egypt, and there's a big series of events there, and, and uh, there's a famine. And, and anyhow, the, the whole rest of the family moves to Egypt. Uh, because that's where the food is, and, and Joseph has risen to a, a very high position. He's second in charge behind only Pharaoh. And so now the whole family is in Egypt, and Jacob is very close to death. Uh, in fact, he dies at the end of this chapter. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But he's very close to death, and so he's, he has uh, seen Joseph, and that was, uh, he, he never thought he would see Joseph again. He, he assumed that Joseph had been killed but he saw Joseph and, and actually blessed Joseph's two sons. Uh, that was back in chapter 48. And so now he gathers his sons together and is going to, uh, my heading said, jo Jacob blesses his sons, but uh, maybe a better heading might be, this is the testament of Jacob. Because as we read this, you will wonder, are these really blessings they don't look like blessings to me, and, and you'll, that will make more sense as we go through this. And, and we're going to look at four of the sons today that, that he blesses or, or talks about. It's a prophecy, actually. And of the sons, the two that get most of the, the blessing or the, uh, the words, anyhow, are uh, Judah and Joseph. 
And we're going to split them up. Judah will take today. Joseph and some of the other sons will take uh, next week. But we're going to take four sons today, including Judah. So let me read uh, Genesis chapter 49, beginning at verse 1. Then Jacob called his sons and said, Gather yourselves together that I may tell you what shall happen to you in the days to come. Assemble and listen, O sons of Jacob. Listen to Israel, your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might, and the firstfruits of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power. Unstable as water, you shall not have preeminence, because you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Weapons of violence are their swords. Let my soul come not into their counsel. O my glory, be not joined to their company. For in their anger they killed men, and in their willfulness they hamstrung oxen. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel." Judah, your brothers shall praise you, and your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He stooped down, he crouched as a lion, and as a lioness, who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples, binding his foal to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He has washed his garments in wine, and his vesture in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk." The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for these words that you give us. And as we look at them, though they may seem difficult, you have great truth in them. And we ask that you reveal that truth to us and that we may be strengthened and encouraged in your word. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when you look at the different uh, types of literature that are out there, uh, there are some that are uh, fairly difficult. Uh, ancient literature is always a little bit tricky to try to figure out. There's a lot of cultural things, and if you've been in school and had to read uh, Socrates or Plato or things like that, uh, you understand that there's some difficulty uh, in trying to understand all of that. And, and part of it has to do with just, uh, it's ancient literature and, and, and we just don't make sense of everything. Uh, poetry can sometimes be hard. And I'm not talking about, you know, roses are red and violets are blue. That I can figure out. But it's this other kind of poetry that doesn't even rhyme, really. You know, it's about meter and rhythm and, and there's a lot of words in it. And as I start to read poetry, my mind is screaming, just get to the point! You know, it's, I don't need all these words. What are you trying to tell me? Uh, so that can sometimes be difficult. Prophecy 
It is hard sometimes. You read Isaiah and Daniel and, and Jeremiah in the Old Testament and then Revelation in the New Testament. And you try to put it together and, you, whoa, this can sometimes be a little difficult. And I mention that because when we look at this passage, what we have is ancient poetry that is also prophecy. We need help with this. This is difficult stuff to try to figure out. There's words in here that actually I only used once in Scripture here. And it's the first really long poem that we have in Scripture. And, and much of it is prophecy uh, coming up. And, and so we'll, we'll take a, a look at this and, and try to decipher as best as we can. But through it all, with God's help, we're going to see uh, what God is, is telling us in all of this. And so we begin uh, with Jacob gathering his sons together. You see that in verses 1 and 2. And this is a typical event uh, in ancient times. Uh, the, the father would gather the sons uh, for the last will and testament, if, if you want to put it that way. Uh, the, the blessing, if you will. He, he's going to give things to certain sons or bless them in a certain way. But also, we have, as I mentioned, the added element of prophecy here. Some of this is going to concern things that are happening soon. Some of it uh, hundreds of years later when Israel goes into the promised land and some of it even then beyond that, uh, all the way to the Messiah. So Jacob gathers his sons and, and we get this idea of the prophecy when he tells them uh, about, I shall tell you what will happen to you in the days to come. And whenever we see that phrase in Scripture, that appears only in prophecy context. So right away we're told up front, he's prophesying about many things here in these days to come. And then in verse 2 he said, listen, listen. He uses that word twice. He takes this mantle of, of the wise teacher. Here's what's going to happen. You really need to listen to this. And so then he starts with this testament and he starts with reuben in verses three and four reuben you are my firstborn and as the firstborn uh, reuben is uh, supposed to have as it mentions preeminence preeminence uh, in dignity preeminence in power he's supposed to have the biggest share in fact, when Reuben was born, his name means see a son. Uh, when he was born, uh, Leah, these, the four we're taking today are all sons of Leah. Uh, Leah exclaimed, see a son. There was joy, great joy that this son was born. And here was the one who was going to have preeminence and, and carry on the rest of the tribe. He's, he's the, the first. And there's that word first fruits in verse 3 the first fruits of my strength, and that suggests that Reuben should have had a, a holy calling. Whenever we see first fruits in Scripture, you, know, you bring the first fruits to the temple. Christ is described as the first fruits. In fact, the children of God, believers, are described as first fruits uh, in, in Scripture as well. Uh, first fruits. He should have had a holy calling, except uh, 
unstable as water? In verse 4, you shall not have preeminence. Okay, we need a little bit of the backstory of Reuben here. So, and the backstory isn't very long. Uh, it's one verse, actually, and it's in Genesis chapter 35, uh, verse 22. And I'll just read the verse as it is. While Israel, or Jacob and, and the family, lived in that land, and, and it's beyond the Tower of Eder, where they were at the time, but here it goes. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine, and Israel heard of it. And that's all that's really said about it. Nothing more ever gets mentioned. Reuben went and lay with Bilhah, his father's concubine. And the, the question was never really answered. Well, was this lust or was this ego? And probably a, a bit of both. But, but what it was, uh, was this idea that Reuben, as the firstborn, he's... He's uh, trying to assert his status as the authority. He's the firstborn and he has certain privileges and he can do whatever he wants and get away with it. And this is going to show all his brothers that he has authority to do whatever he wants. It's said back in chapter 35, Israel heard of it, but nothing was ever mentioned. But now... Now, Jacob's, and I like how one commentator put it, Jacob's long and eerie silence about this episode is broken. And he tells Reuben what he has done. On verses, uh, well, in verse 4, you went up to your father's bed. Then you defiled it. And then notice he turns to the third person. He went up to my couch. It's as though he turned to the rest of the brothers then and said, he went up to my couch. He, he, he called out Reuben after all this time and then said, he went up. And, and you wonder, uh, what was he doing when he announced it? Did some of the brothers really not know? You know, maybe. Maybe Reuben had kind of kept it hidden and the rest of the brothers didn't know. Or maybe another thought, and this is, if I were making a movie of this, this is the way I would go with it, is that Reuben thinks he's gotten away with it, but Jacob here is now announcing to everybody, I know what happened. I didn't say anything, but I know what happened. He went up to my couch. And you could only imagine the stunned silence in that room when Jacob said, he went up to my couch. Kind of reminds you a little bit of when Jesus uh, was talking in, in Luke, and he also said it in Mark, and, and Jesus said, Nothing is hidden that will not be made manifest, nor is anything secret that will not be known and come to light. And Reuben, who thought uh, maybe he'd pulled one over on Jacob here, uh, now is called out. I love the Matthew Henry quote, those that throw away their virtue must not expect to save their reputation. That is a great quote, and it applies to Reuben here. He was the privileged one, but now his reputation is destroyed and his inheritance is, in, is destroyed as well. 
And we often uh, have this idea that there's certain privileges that, that uh, certain people have and, and that they don't ever seem to have to uh, live with the consequences of things. In fact, maybe sometimes look at people to defend uh, certain immorality, but that's not how it works in the economy of God. It will all come out to light. And if you think you're privileged, it's a different story. And you, what happened to the tribe of Reuben? As I mentioned, this is prophecy. Well, uh, from this tribe of Reuben, who was the firstborn, should have had preeminence, there are no prophets who come from this tribe, no judges, no kings. In fact, the only two that are famous at all are actually infamous, and their names are Dathan and Abiram, and this happened in Numbers 16. They were two of, of three, actually, that, that rebelled against Moses. And in the end of all of it, what they had to do was come out and stand in front of their tent with their family and their possessions, and the ground opened up and swallowed them up and then closed back over them. And those are the two that we know about from the tribe of Reuben. Otherwise, there's really no one of significance. Uh, in Deuteronomy chapter 33, Moses is giving blessings to the tribes of Israel just before they go across uh, into the promised land. And he gives a blessing to the tribe of Reuben, and it's very short, and it reads, let Reuben live and not die, but let his men be few. He was supposed to have the, the tribe, the superior tribe, the biggest with the most things, but it doesn't work out. He disqualifies himself. And as I mentioned, we're, we're called first fruits. In 2 Thessalonians and in James and in Revelations, uh, that name is, is put on God's people, his children. And it's this reminder that we don't have all the privilege to do anything we want, but we are called to holiness, not immorality, not to boost our ego, but we're called to holiness and God sees everything we do and it will all come to light. So there's Reuben. And then next we move to uh, Simeon and Levi and, and these two get taken together because of something that has happened in the past that we'll get to. But, but here's Simeon and Levi in verses uh, 5 through 7. And he mentions... Uh, in, in verse 5, uh, weapons of violence are their swords. And that word violence in the King James Version gets translated cruelty. And that's a good translation uh, because this, it's a, a, a strong word, uh, cold-blooded, unscrupulous, uh, brutal, hateful. I mean, it, it's, it's, a, it's a hard word, these, these men of violence. Uh, there's, there's a little bit of poetry, if you were to see it in the, in the Hebrew, when he talks about his, his soul and, and glory and not coming into their council or into their company. And basically what he's saying is, I don't want to be associated with how they're thinking, with what they do. I don't want to be thinking like that at all. They're cruel. And, and even this in verse uh, 6, at the end of verse 6, in their willfulness, they hamstrung oxen. And I love how the NET translates the word. They put in their pleasure, they hamstrung oxen. Just, they thought it was fun to injure animals. 
and, and it was, they're cruel. And what they were doing they thought was acceptable and fun and even honorable. And let me give you the backstory of these two. In Genesis chapter 34, uh, their sister, Dinah, was uh, defiled by the prince of the land. There was the king and then the prince, uh, Shechem was his name, and, and Shechem uh, defiled her but wanted to marry her. And so the king and, and Shechem came to Jacob and the sons and said, well, he wants to marry her. And, and so they came to an agreement. All right, yeah, we'll, we'll do that. And then there was an agreement made. And part of that agreement was that if we're going to intermarry among each other, then all the men of the city have to be circumcised because that, that's how we are. And so Shechem's like, yeah, I want to do it. So he had all the men, all at one time, get circumcised. And while the men were all healing, Simeon and Levi lead a charge in and they kill all the men and take all the wives and children and all of the goods. They, they plundered the city. And in fact, what, had, what happened is uh, they had to move. Uh, Jacob looked at them and said, now everybody hates us. We're not trustworthy. We came to an agreement. You broke the agreement. And then you killed a whole bunch of men who didn't deserve to die. It was one guy who, who we should have been angry at. And you killed all the men, took everything. We got to move. Everyone around us uh, hates us. They were self-righteous and cruel uh, in their anger. And uh, so uh, as the, the testament here continues in verse 7, cursed be their anger, says Jacob, and, and, and their wrath, cursed be their wrath, it's cruel. I will divide them in Jacob and scatter them in Israel. And so uh, what happened to these tribes? Well, the Levites certainly get scattered. When they get into the promised land, they don't have a land of their own. They live in 48 cities amongst everyone else's land. So they certainly get scattered. Uh, they're divided in that the two tribes never worked together. In fact, there's some indication uh, in there where it seemed like they almost didn't even get along at times. But what really, in this poetic way, what really he's getting at here with these ideas of dividing and scattering is, is it's implied this loss of power and this dispersal within the nation. They'll just kind of be assimilated in, as the Levites certainly were. As I mentioned, they didn't have their own land. And I mentioned... Uh, Moses giving the blessings to the tribes before they go across into the promised land in Deuteronomy 33. The tribe of Simeon isn't even mentioned. They have become so insignificant and so assimilated in with everyone else, they don't even get mentioned. So Reuben disqualifies himself from having preeminence. One of these two should have been next in line, Simeon and Levi. They have now disqualified themselves because of their cruel, hateful actions. Reminds us a little bit of what Paul tells us in Galatians chapter 5. Uh, the works of the flesh are evident, and he starts actually with sexual immorality and impurity. That would go back to Reuben. But in this list also he mentions strife, fits of anger, rivalry, dissensions, divisions. And then Paul writes, I warn you, those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Later on, he'd write then, let us walk by the Spirit. Let us not become conceited. 
provoking one another. And these two brothers provoked themselves, and, and the rest of the brothers too. There were more in on it, but these were the ringleaders. Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. And then later on, Paul writes, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. And those would be wonderful words for everyone to think of uh, today, because we do live in a very angry, vengeful time. And it is so easy to let that anger consume us. Where vengeance is mine, and I will attack whomever and whatever I want because I am right. In my righteous anger, I will take it out on whatever I want and go way, way over the line as these two brothers did. So here we are now. We've got uh, three sons mentioned, and we're really not off to a good start in these blessings, are we? Thankfully, we come to Judah next. And Judah was not without some fault, but we get something good in our prophecy with Judah. And it's in verses 8 through 12. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And if you were to see that in the Hebrew, there's some, uh, some poetry there. Judah and the word for praise you and the word for your hand, they all sound about the same. It's, it's very poetic, uh, rhymes a little bit. Uh, praise is the word that Leah uh, used when, uh, when Judah was born. She said, this time I will praise the Lord, and so that's how we got the name Judah. Uh, I will praise the Lord, and, and so that word comes back. This hand on the neck is a gesture of triumph. And from the tribe of Judah is going to come, as, as many of us know, King David. And then beyond that is going to come the Messiah, Christ himself. And so we see some of that the language in there, uh, the lion. You'll, you'll notice the, he talks about uh, lions in there. And there's a, a sign of strength and, and courage and, and boldness. And, and by the way, lions at this time were actually quite common in that part of the world. Um, and, and David, of course, is going to show uh, strength and courage and boldness as, as he leads uh, Israel. But, but Christ is even greater. Uh, when you get to verse 10 and, and you see the scepter shall not depart nor the staff uh, from between his, his feet. There's, there's something eternal here and, and Christ is going to come and he's even better and, and he has more authority and, and this is real authority, not like what Reuben was trying to do earlier. This is real authority that this tribe is, is going to have. There's tribute and, and obedience in verse 10. You'll see that that will come uh, to King David and then to the Messiah. Uh, in verses 11 and 12, it talks about the grapes, you know, and, and, and you wonder, well, who's going to wash their garments in wine? That makes no sense at all. Well, this is a poetic way of talking about uh, um, an abundance, 
And as they're treading the grapes, there's going to be so many grapes as they tread it and make it into wine that not only will they be splashed with all of this grape juice, but it's going to be like they're soaked in this wine. There is so much, this great abundance of of wine and in verse 12 you can take that that might be a sign of, of beauty uh, with eyes darker than wine and, and teeth whiter than milk but probably that's also hinting at in a poetic way this idea of abundance an abundance of grapes an abundance of wine an abundance of milk when they go into the land of milk and and honey so what happens to the tribe of judah well as i mentioned they become very powerful King David leads the unified Israel. And then even when Israel splits up, Judah is its own nation then. They're very powerful. It's then Judah and Israel. And of course, we have the Messiah. And, and let me just jump to Revelation real quick when we talk about uh, Christ. And, and in Revelation chapter 5, what is happening is John has is, is been taken to heaven and, and there's a, a scroll presented. And who's going to open the scroll? Well, nobody worthy is found to open this scroll. And John starts weeping because he wants to know what's in this scroll. And, and then he said, I began to weep. And then one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. The roots of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And then there's singing that takes place. And, and uh, they're singing, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open it. You were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and, a, and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then later on, uh, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And they fall down and they worship him. That is what we like in a prophecy right there. This Messiah who will reign forever and, and ever. But as I mentioned, Judah was not without his faults. And let me go back real quick to what happened with Judah. And it involved his daughter-in-law, Tamar. And this is back in Genesis chapter 38. And what had happened is Tamar had married uh, Judah's eldest son, who was, by the way, a pretty wicked guy. And, and he died, and Tamar was left without children. She was a widow, had no children, and the custom was then the next son would take her as a wife and have children, and the first child would be for the brother who wasn't there anymore, so that the inheritance would carry on through him. Well, the next brother was pretty wicked too and wouldn't do it, and so he dies, and Tamar is still a widow with no children, but there's another son who's a little younger, and Judah tells Tamar, here's what I will do. I'll give you him when he's old enough. He's just not old enough right now, but when he gets old enough, uh, he will be uh, your husband, and you can bear children through him. Well, that time came, and Judah never followed through uh, with what he told Tamar he would do. And so she's still childless and still a widow. And what she does then is she dresses up as a harlot, 
and uh, presents herself to Judah as a harlot, and a child is conceived, actually two, they were twins, and Judah hears about Tamar, who's not married, and this widow, and he says, well, that is a child of immorality. She should be killed. But then Tamar, in a roundabout way, says, wait a minute, Judah, this is your child. And then Judah says, she is more righteous than I. As soon as he realized what's going on, he repented. She is more righteous than I. And we're called to righteousness, as I've mentioned. Not to ego, not to immorality like Reuben. Not to be vindictively angry, uh, play God, uh, if you will, like Simeon and Levi did, but to be repentant like Judah. And as soon as we see our sin, to say, wait a minute, I'm not righteous. I need to repent. And so we see some of these things in here about us. But also when we look at this passage, I want us to see what's revealed about God. A little bit of what we see in God here. First of all, his eternal plan. We have this prophecy here that doesn't happen hundreds, even thousands of years later. God is sovereign and God is completely in charge of everything. And he sees all things. But we can take comfort in that because what we also see in this is God is long-suffering and is merciful. Judah had his sin and he repented right away. Levi, as cruel as Levi was when he came, when that tribe came to that point of repentance, Levi became priests. They were the ones who served in the temple. Moses and Aaron from the tribe of Levi. Even Reuben, remember what Moses said about Reuben in Deuteronomy 33, let Reuben live. His men will be few. There are consequences to his sin here on earth, but let Reuben live. What we see is this long-suffering God who's really put up with a lot of nonsense. But we get this... Uh, sense from uh, Numbers uh, 14, 18, when Moses uh, says, as he's talking uh, to Israel, he said, the, the Lord is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, forgiving iniquity and transgression, but he will by no means clear the guilty. And then he talks about the sins of the father going down to the sons, as Reuben found out. The psalmist in Psalm 86 writes, But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Slow to anger. We've all put God in that spot where we wonder later on, God, why didn't you strike me down right there? 
Why did you bring me through that? Because he is slow to anger and gracious. And I love how Peter writes it in 2 Peter chapter 3. He writes, count the patience of our Lord as salvation. Praise God he's been patient with us. Praise God that he's loving enough to put up with us and guide us back into righteousness. Peter also writes in 2 Peter chapter 3 uh, that the the Lord is slow and and some will even complain about that. Why is God taking so long to come back? And, And Peter writes that all should reach repentance because that's where we all need to be. And that's where we should all be striving to lead others as we point to God's truth, his slowness to anger, but his abundance of love and faithfulness that he shows us in Christ, dying on the cross for our sins. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you that you are long-suffering. We thank you that you have seen our sin and still love us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. Help us to see and hate our own sin. And as soon as we see it, to come to that point of repentance like Judah and immediately say, I'm not righteous. I need Christ. And help us in our walk in this world to be your light that we may bring others to know who you are, that they too will come to repentance and praise you and be saved. And we pray this in the name of our loving Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. And then, if you will stand, what we will do is sing the doxology.